Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash slate money and using the promo code slate money. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try it for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. That's ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. And by Open Account, a podcast created by Su Jin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores, through honest and sometimes comical interviews, our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is coming soon on iTunes. Hello and welcome to the Bad Odds edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello. Hello. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. And we have a packed and awesome show for you this week. We are going to talk about the Department of Justice, which has this bright idea that it should maybe send criminals to jail. What? What? I know, shocking. They, we are also going to talk about the new Broad Museum in L.A., because even though we like to be very New York-centric here, we do realize there are other cities, and they have an interesting art museum model, which I've been fascinated by for some years. But first, the multi-billion dollar market in legal sports betting, it turns out that it's not just Nevada where you can legally bet on sports. You can legally bet on sports in 45 of the 50 states. Kathy, yes. who knew? You know, I knew this. And I'll tell you why I knew this, because I listened to sports radio. And <laughs> 
probably every other commercial is about this. It's either from it's for the two big players in the space are DraftKings and FanDuel. And they constantly pitch that anybody can come on and win big money betting on their favorite sports teams. Well, you have to... Or I think sports we, players. Sports, well, yeah. fantasy... So they create their, their own fantasy team, it should be said. The way this works is you go on, you build a fantasy team. You are the general manager for your own fantasy team. And you get to trade players if you think, oh, I need this player, I'm going to get rid of this player. It's really complicated um, in terms of what would actually make you win more than, the, than, than lose. But the point is that everyone actually loses. Yeah, well, for the well, mo- everyone, because there there was this awesome Bloomberg article out this week, which explains that there's a bunch of number crunching data geek types who are professional fantasy sports players and basically win all of the money. Yeah, I think it was there was a study that said like 1.3 percent of players end up taking all the cash in the end. Uh, that was based on like the baseball fantasy sports, right. I believe. I mean, it's it's an incredibly small fraction of professionals who kind of feed on the rest of the... And they have hundreds of teams which they're constantly juggling at all times, and it's all highly sophisticated, statistical, ledger domain, and everyone else thinks that they're in with a chance, but realistically, they're not. Well, yes, exactly. And I, when I said everybody loses, I, of course, meant everyone except basically hedge fund quants who are taking this on as their full-time job. No surprise to someone like myself, who is a former hedge fund quant, because this is exactly, exactly this, the arena that you want to work in, because it's almost the definition of dumb money. This is what we mean when we say dumb money. People coming in saying, I'm going to be the general manager of my fantasy team, and I'm just going to sort of randomly choose people who I like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, have you guys ever played fantasy sports? One of the things that is huge in Britain um, and Ireland is this thing called spread betting. And spread betting is enormously popular, and that allows you to basically trade the outcomes of games, not only before, but even during the time during which the game is being played. Um, And people win and lose huge amounts of money on this, and but I mean it's there in the name. It's called spread betting. The weird thing about fantasy sports is that somehow they have managed to find this regulatory loophole under which they're not considered gambling and they're not considered betting and therefore they're legal. Well, and the reason they do that is because they're considered a game of skill. Yeah. If it's just straight up like well, roulette. If the, if the hedge fund quants are winning all of the money, then clearly it is a game of skill. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. It is. I think... Well, well it, to, be, to be fair, like weird things happen in sports all the time. That's why we like sports. But if you have enough bets and you're, you're, you're smart about it, then if you get 52 out of 100 things right, then you make money on average. What I kind of want to know about fantasy sports betting is who the sucker, like the demographics of the suckers. You know, the one the sports of the re- fans. Well, yeah, but sports fans are a massive, massive group. And one of the reasons that we worry about semi-legalized gambling in the U.S. in general is because it tends to be a tax on the poor, right? Most of the legalized gambling in the U.S. is either stuff like, you know, lotteries or uh, slot machines that are run by the state, essentially. Uh, and, and it's low-income people who are just 
forking over cash for the thrill of the game. I'm curious if the demographics are, are similar. So yeah, there's 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 kind of funny terminology, at least set out in this Bloomberg article. I assume it's is general. Um, fish are especially new fish. Fish are the ones that you, the sharks look for, and the, the sharks are the ones, the hedge fund traders that make the money. And then there's this third category. So most people are fish, actually. Let's just be clear. Most people are fish. There's a few really smart sharks, and then there's some whales who just sort of throw money at it and lose. Yeah. And, and they're like the profit centers. They're the guys who ever. Well, like, no, it's the fish who are the profit. The fish centers. is fish. I think fish as an aggregate are more profitable. But yes, the whales certainly per person are yeah, more. The ag- whales like thirty five percent of the money is according to some. At least uh-huh. according to Bloomberg, right, uh-huh. which means the sixty five percent is the fish. If the demographics are just like middle class white guys who like to bet a little on sports, I'm not really that worried about all this. If it's something where they're skimming money off a lot of poor people and redirecting it to FanDuel and DraftKings, then I am a little bit more concerned you know, about this. I'll tell you why I'm not worried about this <laughs> very much. I actually do. I don't know the demographics, but um, I imagine that people who spend a lot of time on their computers with Wi-Fi and just figuring out this stuff out are generally speaking pretty much middle class. But if you really think about what this is replacing in terms of their their income, it's replacing like going to games, which is incredibly expensive and spending their you know time in bars watching games and buying beer. Um, so would they spend time at home on their computer watching games on the on the on cable, which is expensive, but it's not nearly as expensive. Like, I guess so what you, I'm saying you, is, you reckon that the fantasy football or baseball or basketball is actually cheaper because it means you go to fewer games and go to fewer bars. I mean, I'm guessing that the diehard sports fans choose between going to games or playing with their fantasy teams online. And I say that, you know, not with that much evidence, but one thing I've noticed listening to a lot of sports radio, sports talk radio, which I listen to far too much, is that like the sports radio guys are now taking calls so it's sort of enter the real mainstream of, of sports now. They're taking calls from people with with questions. Can you give me advice about my fantasy team? That used to be not done. It was like they distanced themselves from this gambling. Now it is mainstream. And this is what fanatical sports people who talk to sports radio guys think about all the time. So one of the peculiarities of gambling is that because it's considered sinful, in sort of Christian countries like like the United States, it gets whacked with all manner of sin taxes. Cigarettes are expensive because they're considered sinful, so we put like lots of taxes on them. And gambling is considered sinful. So if you look at lotteries, most that you know they are very very highly taxed, or indeed being run by the state in most situations. If you go to Nevada or any casino, there's always massive taxes. Um, and revenues going back to the state, and the state feels that it can tax gambling at much, much higher rates than any other kind of regular business. Now, it strikes me that this is where the interesting loophole is happening, that FanDuel and DraftKings are not being taxed at higher rates because they are not considered gambling and they're not considered sinful in that sense. Let me let me give you another reason why I think it's a little bit less sinful, and it kind of deserves a status. I'm, I'm sounding like a totally a gambler here, but... If you've ever really, if you ever really want to get depressed about the tax on the poor that is represented by gambling, go to a um, like twenty store twenty four or Seven Eleven and see people blow their paycheck on those little cards that they scratch off with their coins, and then whenever they win anything, they take all the proceeds and buy more of those cards until they're done with their paycheck. That doesn't happen in fantasy football or any of these fantasy sports because it's actually like you have to wait to see what happens next weekend. And there's a kind of a lag. This is daily now. I mean, this is one of the big 
evolutions of this space is that fantasy teams used to be you picked your team at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season you'd know whether you won or lost and now it's a daily thing that you pick your team one day and then by the end of the day you know whether with you baseball you, you do and, and of course you can always scale up but that would mean building a bunch of different gonna, teams i was gonna say part of what i think you're right here is that there's a there no matter what there's a higher barrier to entry than just scratching off a lottery ticket there's there's no way that you can just as easily spend money on fantasy sports unless you have a highly automated system and you have several algorithms going at once like you are one of these sharks your your typical sports fan just is not going to be able to match that kind of activity nevertheless it is a bit weird is it not that we can legally have bets on the daily outcome of games if we call it fantasy football, but we can't have bets on the outcome of games if we call it betting on the outcomes of games. Absolutely. And I want to add that one of the weird things that was described in this Bloomberg article that I think is really scary is that they are now allowing scripts. They're allowing algorithms. They're allowing these sort of professional fantasy sports players to use computers to automatically change their settings. Um, with permission, but it's still like most, a lot of the people were saying this should be banned outright. And they're like, nah, we're going to, you're going to have to ask for permission, whatever that means. But the point is that it really is, those are sharks. Those are serious sharks. And it really is. High frequency fantasy football. I love Absolutely. High frequency fantasy football. So buyer beware, obviously. So don't do daily fantasy football unless you enjoy it and you enjoy losing your money. Unless you're just like, this is my money to spend and lose. We are sponsored by Casper this week. Casper makes amazing mattresses. They combine premium latex foam with memory foam, and they're exactly the kind of mattress that you would normally pay a gazillion dollars for. That's a technical term. Um, or at least, you know, thousands. Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin and $950 for a king-size mattress. This is nothing compared to the cost that you would normally pay for a mattress this good. These these are the best things, but they have cut out all the middlemen. They're selling straight to you. And this is the best bit. You can send it back within 100 days if you don't like anything about it. Like, this is completely risk-free. Get your mattress, sleep on it, sleep well, go, oh my god, this is amazing. Keep it. If you, for whatever reason, don't love it, they will just take it away. Um, within 100 days. You get 100 days of sleeping for free. It's amazing. So go to casper.com slash slate money, use the promo code slate money, and you get $50 off any of those mattresses. So that means they're as low as 450 bucks. Awesome deal. Um, Jordan. Yes. White collar crime. We haven't covered that except for in every single episode. But. This is that's I, we, we've covered about half as much as we've covered Uber. Come on, Felix. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, as, as you may remember from a few of our past episodes, uh, the Department of Justice hasn't done such a great job uh, prosecuting individuals who may or may not have committed fraud, broken the law, manipulated a foreign exchange market, even when they've brought criminal cases against banks and made. The banks themselves uh, plead guilty to actual crimes. Which is rare enough. Which is rare enough. Only just started happening. Um, Now, okay, so I am going to just put a little asterisk here and say I'm not sure I agree with you that they haven't done a great job of sending the fraudsters to jail. But continue. So, after we will discuss this further, but... After all these years of criticism, the Department of Justice seems to be kind of evolving. And this week, they circulated an internal memo 
basically saying we need to go after individuals. We need to start making sure we prosecute the actual felons, the people who perpetrated these crimes at corporations, at banks. Um, it's kind Did they say banks in the memo? They did not say bank specifically. It's all corporate crime. However, it's that it's sort of white collar crime. White collar crime, but it's I mean it's white well white collar crime is a very broad category. Corporate crime is sort of a, a subset of that. But because I feel there are two different things going on here. Yeah. One is that the Department of Justice every so often will reach a settlement with a company where the company pays a fine for doing something wrong, but no individual is prosecuted. And the Department of Justice is saying, in these situations, we really ought to be a little bit more zealous about finding an individual to prosecute because companies are made up of individuals and individu if they do something wrong, then individuals should go to jail. Yes. The other issue, which always seems to get conflated with this is the now, I don't know, six-year-old complaint, which is no one went to jail for causing the financial crisis. And, you know, all of these banks have paid all of these fines for various different things that they did wrong. But what we haven't seen is senior executives at the big banks go to jail. And Maybe that's because senior executives at the big banks didn't actually break the law or cause the financial crisis, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, that, that I think you're right to make that distinction. However, there also have been cases like fixing the Forex market, like uh, the tax problems with Swiss banks, where there haven't been as, as zealous prosecutions as they thought maybe there should, as a lot of critics maybe but thought there should But nearly all of those cases, like we have seen the Forex people go to jail. We have seen the private bankers go to jail. They haven't been senior executives, but we have seen people get jailed. Well, so there have been some, and that's actually, that comes back to this memo and why some people are wondering about it. Um, not a lot of people have gone to jail, though. Yeah, that, and that's, we shouldn't paint a picture as saying, "Oh, we've actually done a good job with that." Yeah, there have been a few, especially anyway. We we don't need to get too in the weeds on, on that aspect of it. But what I want to talk about is what they are saying they're going to do now to these to companies that come under scrutiny. Currently, the way investigations basically work, uh, once uh, a company is suspected of wrongdoing and it looks like prosecutors are, are launching investigation, is a bank, a major multinational, whatnot, will hire a expensive law firm, and they'll come and do an internal investigation, and they'll hand over a lot of that to the DOJ or to whatever U.S. attorney is looking into this, the matter. And then, of course, the government lawyers are doing their own investigation on the side. They take all that info, and they come to some sort of a settlement. What the Department of Justice is saying now is that we are not going to give companies any, co any credit for cooperating unless they give us, quote, all the relevant info on individuals, which is a way of saying you have to give us some scalps. Um, and what people are wondering is, and there's this great, there's this great line from Loretta Lynch saying, "And we don't just want the vice president in charge of going to jail." <laughs> yeah, yes. that was, it, was <laughs> it was an amazing line. I think it was actually uh, just to credit it. I think it was actually Sally Yates. She was the one who wrote the mem memo, but Loretta Lynch would have loved to have actually said it. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it's. So I guess what you're saying is that the the process so far has been, well, we're going to do an internal investigation, but when we hand over the documents and the descriptions of what happened, we will have anonymized. Well, the, there will, no names will be named. Well, they know. The, the DOJ knows the names of the people. They don't, in the complaints, it's always like, you know, person A and person B. Right. But the that's DOJ what we know, read. The, that's what we read. But the prosecutors know who those people are. So what's really going to change? Well, sometimes they know. Sometimes they don't. There was a case involving BMP Paribas uh, a while ago where the bank kind of held back info until there had been a statute of limitations tolling. Uh, so they didn't 
they weren't really able to go after some of the individuals involved. Uh, and, and they don't want repeats of that sort of situation. So really, what, again, I think that this is saying is you need to give us enough information to bring a legitimate case against some of the people who are suppo- who are responsible. The question and is, if you don't, then you what? get you get no credit, which is essentially you're not going to get a softer settlement like you would before, like you used to be able to just by giving the kind of generalized outline of what so happened. So I guess what you're saying, and, and I, I keep on forgetting this until people remind me about the, how law works, yeah. but dragging your feet is like one of the most, you know, efficient ways of not getting things done. Yeah. Right. So basically what you're saying is there will be punishment around dragging your feet. Uh, that's, yeah, that's actually a, a much better way to simplify it than I just did. <laughs> so that's, or, or they that's say that they will, yes. because the, the proof of the pudding here is going to be in the eating. And... As James Stewart says in the New York Times, um, even if the Department of Justice has not gone aggressively after these corporate criminals, um, if you look at someone like Cyrus Vance Jr. in New York, there's been a bunch of like extraordinarily zealous prosecutions of white collar criminals. It's not like these things aren't happening. And certainly, uh, we've talked, I'm pretty sure, on this show in the past about the case of Sergei Alenikov, who he keeps on prosecuting, even though no one thinks that he should be prosecuting. I, that's I, an individual, though. I, I yeah, have, but yeah. that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about prosecuting individuals. I think what we're really talking about on a political level, though, is like Eric Holder made the mistake of saying some banks have gotten too big to jail. And now Loretta Lynch has to be like, we have to backtrack on that. We have to make sure people don't think that's still true. I think that's 100 percent uh, true. It's. I think it's been, an, and, and Eric Holder himself realized that kind of towards the end of his term as attorney general. And then I think this is, like I said, the the end point, or maybe just maybe a midpoint on an evolution uh, on the part of the Department of Justice. Also, I'd be hesitant to equate uh, the the Manhattan District Attorney's Office with the the um, the federal government's approach to all this. I mean, the, the Manhattan. No, no, I'm, not, I'm, yeah. saying, I'm distinguishing. Yeah. Them. Yeah. That's the whole point. I'm not saying okay. they're the same. I'm saying that. If the DOJ isn't doing stuff, it's not like it isn't getting done. If the DOJ isn't doing stuff, then local AGs Sometimes. and, and DAs Sometimes. are bringing prosecutions. To some degree. I mean, it, it, DOJ is the big fish. Did I also read something about there being incentives for lower employees to, like, rat out their higher-ups? As part of the whistleblower summer. laws, yeah, yeah, that, that's that's there've always been whistleblower laws. So I see. So yeah. that's not new. Yeah, although maybe they, they may be uh, enhancing maybe them in some ways. More protected. But, yeah, I mean they've always tried. That that's sort of the standard operating procedures. You try to get some low level guy to flip on his superior. This is a little bit far afield, but I'm just bear with me. I I feel like the fact that we don't actually put people in jail for doing white collar crimes enough, and we do put poor people in jail a lot. Um, is is like the the flip side of the same coin. I like to I like to see a little bit more equality among those two groups. So that it's interesting. There's actually this sort of um, almost counter movement to uh, to that, where they're saying instead of trying to jail more white collar criminals, we should keep treating them with a little bit of lenience and just jail fewer, you know, poor drug offenders. I, I, I'm I would sign on for that because it really doesn't strike me that jailing white-collar criminals, especially ones who didn't have personal gain, serves any particular societal interest. It does not serve as a deterrent to doing the kind of things that generally get prosecuted, and it does not serve to rehabilitate the criminals, and it's just not something like, if you break the law, then that's bad, but I 
don't necessarily believe that all law, all broken laws should end up in jail. You don't think the there's US, any deterrence effect, really? Very, almost, almost zero. It's a really good question about that the data should be able to answer. It's actually, but since we have no data on actually putting anybody in jail, <laughs> it's hard to answer whether deterrence effect is no, because exists. When, but it's not like it's not when, when people are doing these things, and you know. And I would recommend you read the James Stewart column uh, about Dewey and LeBeouf. When people are doing these things at the time, you know, it's like they're listening to the advice of their accountants and they're doing this and they're doing that. And then ex post, what happens? These prosecutions generally happen after a company has lost a bunch of money. And then, you know, bondholders start being up in arms and saying, you were being fraudulent. And then they go back and ex post, they go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But if you look at any company, you know, you can find an accountant to say that this was a bad idea or this was a good idea. I just, I'm not sure that it's remotely obvious at the time that what you're doing is a criminal act. I mean, I think there there are cases like that. And then there are cases where you have a bunch of guys in a chat room calling themselves the cartel. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, do, there's certainly a lot of gray area, but yeah, I think we can all agree that we should have a little bit more like thought of, to who go, goes to jail and what kind of deterrence there is in people sending people to jail. Yeah, because I don't think that, you know, if you're a bond trader in a bank and you lied to a client about the price at which you bought your bonds, is that something you could you should go to jail for? I don't. Well, it's so. like smoking a joint something you should go to jail for. No, exactly. Know, exactly. America jails way too many people for way yeah. too many things and we should jail, jail fewer people for fewer things. Let's all agree to agree. Okay. All right. We are also sponsored this week by ZipRecruiter, which is just this awesome technology which you kind of can't believe hasn't been around forever. If you want to hire people, you put job ads all over the place and you have no idea if the people that you're wanting to hire are actually reading those job ads. Probably they're not. This is how you solve that problem. You go to ZipRecruiter and you, it's just a one-stop shop. You put up your ad, and they have everyone, basically. They will post your ad to over 100 different job sites, and they will instantly be able to match you with over 4 million different resumes that they have access to. They can even, if you give them a series of questions, use your questions to whittle down the pool of candidates to just the most perfect people. So one of their customers, Lisa Pond, says their customer service is great. This is the other great thing about ZipRecruiter. They can pick up the phone. You get a human being to talk to you. It's incredibly easy. And did I mention it was free? Yes, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Free job ads. Who's not, you know, hire people for nothing. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. And you get to try it for free. So that's ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. So a few years ago, I wrote a column for a now defunct magazine called Poder about this incredible idea which had been floated by a Los Angeles art collector named Eli Broad. And he had amassed a very expensive art collect collection. And like many collectors, he wanted to give this art collection to the public in some way. But he had an interesting way of doing that. Rather than donating it to a museum or setting up a museum of his own, he was just going to lend the art out to any museum in the world which wanted it. That was his philanthropy, was to say, 
I don't want all of this art to sit in one place. I'm just going to sit here and actively try to lend out as much as my, of my collection as possible to as many museums as possible, and that's how I'm going to get it out in the world and, and viewed by the public. And, and just, I thought just that for was, people this who are a great idea for people who aren't art uh, experts like yourself, you really just give it to someone like what nobody you lend it. You, I mean, so yes, of course you lend it. You get it back. Yes. You probably have a contract, right? Yes. Give it back to me in six months or whatever. Exactly. But there's no payment. Um, the borrowing institution pays for the insurance costs and the transportation costs and that kind of stuff. And in certain circumstances, uh, museums have started to charge other kind of fees, but best practice is no payment. Got it. And one of the things that I was quite excited about was that other collectors might do this as well, that maybe even collectors might donate their collections posthumously to Eli Broad and say, can I just like, can I increase your collection because we'll get it lent out. And this would be great for small regional museums and galleries. It would be great for bringing art to a much broader audience of people than just the big metropolitan museums. And I thought it was a fascinating model. But presumably a growing model. If you think about all the wealth that is being collected by people and they just buy way too much art than they could possibly fit in their living room, I assume. Absolutely. And yet, in the way of all good ideas, it crashed and burned. Oh. Um, Eli Broad changed his mind and built a $400 million museum in Los Angeles called The Broad. Um, and now it looks much like a museum. But and, and it turns out that he wasn't the first Los Angelino to change his mind in this way. Norton Simon was a predecessor of his and also wanted to lend out a bunch of art and also changed his mind and also built what is now the Norton Simon Museum. It's and, a funny trend where they name them, the, the museums <laughs> after themselves. Yeah. Um, so there is this kind of atavistic lending arm still to the Broad. The entire second floor is devoted to art, and theoretically, they are still doing a lot of this lending, but no one really knows whether it's going to do that in practice. So, I was looking at this article in the LA Times, and it was talking about the Broad and and their lending program, and it mentioned that lending also had all sorts of tax advantages attached to it. Uh, Essentially, if you buy art in New York and you want to transport it to California, it you get to pay what's, I think, a use tax, a use fee. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you park it in Phoenix or some other small regional museum for a while, the tax disappears. And and that got me... Well, that's that's less of a problem if you're a non-profit, because okay. non-profits don't pay the taxes anyway. If you're a private individual like Eli Broad buying... Um, a painting in New York and then shipping it to California, then it helps to show it in Portland for a few months. Okay. So, well, my, my question was this, is with these private museums that people like Broad and other billionaires have considered or you know, have opened or consider opening, how much of it is just about saving on taxes? How much How much of, of this has to do with trying to not Try, trying to find a way to have your art, you know, have your cake and eat it too. Have your art collection it's and save your fortune. Huge. Okay. Uh, and if you go, if you look, like, there's a Peter Brandt is another big collector. He has a museum up in Connecticut somewhere where no one has ever been able to get in as far as I can. <laughs> it's theoretically open to the public by request, but mm. I've sent in a couple of requests to see whether they ever get back to me and they never do. Um, so is that nonprofit status? And that's nonprofit status. Ooh. And there's all manner of clever little arbitrages you can do 
if you are collecting for fun and profit, as most collectors are sellers as well as buyers, what you can do is you can buy a bunch of art and then sell the art which goes up in value at a profit and then take the art which doesn't go up in value and donate it to your own museum at the price which you paid for it and get the full tax write-off for the price which you paid for it. Holy shit. So wait, is this <laughs> all just a sort of trading scam? It's not all just a trading scam, but there is an element of trading scam. Wow. So, I mean, is there, like, anything that can be done about I mean, is, is, is it even worth doing anything about it? It just seems there's something that is inherently kind of frustrating about that, but I don't know what what the answer to, you know, if or even if it is something that really... I mean, the funny thing is that without this weird art market that you're describing, like, none of these things would have that much value in the first place. So it's kind of hard to feel sad about missing the taxes on them. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. If it wasn't for the billionaires willing to overbid yeah. on these paintings in the first place, <laughs> the U.S. government wouldn't be collecting the money anyway. So it's just, it's just this weird self-fulfilling yeah, system. Yeah, it's just like an isolated little weird world of art. But some of these collectors actually do have genuinely excellent collections of art which should be viewed by the public. And my view is that it's much better always to have that art ideally on loan to anyone who wants it. But second best is you build some monument to your own ego and tell people that they need to pay an entrance fee to come in and see it. Um, but what's the worst outcome is is to build some tiny private museum which no one ever goes to and then set it up as a non-profit tax dodge. Yeah. God. <laughs> that, that, I never would have seen that without this. Thank you, Felix. Well, you're welcome, Kathy. Makes um, me sad, though. <laughs> and we have one more sponsor. And this one is... A podcast. It's an upcoming podcast by Sujin Pak and Umpqua Bank called Open Account. And this is a really fascinating sounding podcast. I haven't listened to it yet because it is coming soon on iTunes and no one has listened to it yet. But go check it out. It's called Open Account. And it basically just explores this collective uncomfortable silence that we have around money. It's I'm told, honest and emotional and sometimes comical. I am going to be listening to it when it comes on iTunes, open account from Suchin Peck and Umpqua Bank. Um, but we, we do have a numbers round, as ever. Okay, so Jordan, what is your number? Uh, my number is uh, $3.7 trillion, which is $3.7 trillion, which is uh, how much Jeb Bush's latest proposed tax plan would add to the deficit over 10 years, uh, according to the Tax Foundation, which is actually a conservative-leaning uh, think tank. Uh, if you add in all of the sort of uh, questionable assumptions about economic growth uh, that it thinks would, this tax plan would produce, it would add about $1.6 trillion to the uh, deficit, uh, which just goes to say that uh, Jeb Bush, the major, one of the major establishment candidates for president is, uh, or for the Republican nomination for president, isn't all that different from his older brother. Uh, beyond that, it seems like this is sort of the pattern for all Republican tax plans at this point. They're all just like massive, massive, massive money sinks. Um, Except and, for Donald Trump, right? Yes, except for Donald Trump. Actually, that actually might be true. He might be the most fiscally responsible of the Republican candidates so far. There you go. We don't just say rude things about Donald Trump on this show. <laughs> um, my my number is is thirty eight million dollars, and because I was a bit rude about the Manhattan DA and his um, overzealous prosecutions, 
earlier in the show. I'm going to make up for it by saying, good on you, Cyrus Vance. You've taken $38 million from the various different um, bank settlements that you've negotiated over the years, and you are giving it away nationwide. This is not a New York thing. This is a national thing that the Manhattan DA is spending $38 million nationally to clear the national backlog of rape kits. So what happens when you're raped is you get examined and then people do it and then you do a DNA test to see if it matches anyone in the DNA database. But there's this huge backlog and there are millions of these uh, rape kits which are sitting unexamined. And so now they're taking the bank fines and using it to clear the rape kit backlog, which I think is a genius idea and good for him. My number is $725 million, which is the number of dollars that Rupert Murdoch just paid for his 73% stake in National Geographic. Magazine. Magazine. Thank he already you. has a almost identical stake in the TV station. Oh, okay. I didn't even know that. Um, I find this kind of disturbing because Rupert Murdoch is a client, um, a climate change denier. Is and, he yeah, still? I think he is. I think he's flip-flopped on it a couple times. Okay. Because I think one of his sons convinced him, but, but he changed his mind. Anyway, it's it's just, again, another example of Rupert Murdoch, who's a scary man controlling something that actually shouldn't be that controlled. The fascinating thing to me about this acquisition is that Rupert Murdoch had one company called News Corp, which was this huge conglomerate. And then he split it into basically the print stuff, HarperCollins, which is book publishing and the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, New York Post, the Times of London, and the Sun. And that is News Corp. And then on the other side is the film and TV stuff, Fox, Fox News, Fox TV, 20th Century Fox, all, all of that kind of stuff. You would think that it was the print company, News Corp, which bought National Geographic, but it's not. It's the television arm. Interesting. Fox, which bought National Geographic. Well, which to me says this is just kind of complementing their TV, you know, their their stake in the TV channel and they're buying media. I don't know if they're so much buying a magazine, but they're buying photos and potential web video and things along those lines, which might be lucrative. I don't think the the old magazine itself, they're buying a website, etc. I don't know if the the old print magazine is I just want to know whether they're buying science. They're not going to buy a science, <laughs> no, but, they, but, but, but National Geographic, the reason why it sold is precisely because the magazine was not making money and the National Geographic Foundation was struggling fiscally. And now Rupert Murdoch has come along as a white knight and dropped $725 million into their bank account. And now they feel they are dynastically wealthy and they can go on forever. So in, in that sense, it's good for the National Geographic Foundation. It's interesting, though, that National Geographic Foundation couldn't make the magazine profitable. Um, why does Rupert Murdoch think that he can make it profitable? Or is this just going to be a bit like TV Guide, which he spent $4 billion on or something and then went to zero? Mm. We'll see. That is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, subscribe. Find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review there. Write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. The producer for Slate Money is Audrey Quinn. The executive producer is Andy Bowers. Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network. All of the podcasts there can be found at iTunes.com slash Panoply. So we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. <laughs>